you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. This is the last sermon in our Resolve, Living for God's Glory series. And for some of you, it may seem odd to end uh, on the message that we're ending on because, frankly, it should be something that, that we've gotten down. You, you may be thinking, this is something we've heard before, we've heard even recently. Why is he talking about this again? But the truth of the matter is, all of us, no matter how long we've been a Christian, no matter how spiritual we are, no matter how far in the faith we've come, we all have a natural tendency towards spiritual laziness. We all tend to give in to apathy and lethargy when it comes to our spiritual progress. We put off reading the Bible every day because we're busy. We don't come to Sunday school or prayer reading because it's too cold or, or we have a sniffle. And all the more is true when we think of living for God's glory, not just when it comes to our own lives, but when it comes to living in the context of God's people. When it comes to being involved with other Christians, though we would never say it in words, we often tend to think, I'm not all that much worried about it. It's easier just to, it's easier just to, to be for me and for myself and not worry about everyone else. I know that tendency is in all of us. It's still a sinful tendency that springs from our sinful hearts. It's a tendency that we must work at ending. In order to do that, we need the grace of God's Word. And so this morning, I want to bring to us, as we close out this series, a fresh reminder that part of living for God's glory means living as a church, living as a spiritual community called the body of Christ. And this morning, we want to see some directions the Apostle Peter gave some early Christians about how they were to live together both for their good and for God's glory. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 4 beginning at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. Notice how Peter begins this section. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Now that immediately puts us, hopefully, in the realm of thinking about uh, the end of all things from a Christian perspective. What theologians call eschatology, that we might simply just call the end times. And many people talk about the end times in a way that just absolutely does not correspond to the way the Bible talks about the end times. You see, in the biblical mindset, the last days are not something to be mapped and charted and put on diagrams and posters. That's just, that's not, that's not their function in the Bible. Instead, the New Testament teaches that the end times should be seen as a present reality that helps keep our lives to have a Godward focus to them. The end times are present reality, the New Testament teaches, because with the coming of Christ, 
with his life, death, burial, and resurrection, the future has invaded the present. The last days are already upon us. And so from those first apostles to us, the New Testament envisions this extended period called the last days. So that even now we can say, not because we see some prophecy to fill a newspaper, but because the New Testament teaches, because Christ has come, the end is near. You know, I was reading several years ago, back in 1959, the Queen of England was coming to visit America, and for whatever reason, she was specifically going to visit the city of Chicago. And apparently that city uh, embarked on some very elaborate preparations for her visit. The waterfront was readied for the docking of her yacht. For her yacht, garbage cans along the streets were, were given fresh coats of paint and cleaned up. A red carpet was rolled out for her, and many hotels were alerted to her impending arrival. But when the city contacted the famous Drake Hotel in Chicago, the manager said that there would be no change in their operations. And somewhat astonished, the, the, the individual contacted them and said, I don't understand, how come you're not going to do anything different? To which the hotel manager replied this, We are making no plans for the queen. Our rooms are always ready for royalty. Now that does not just want me to, that not only invokes within me a desire to stay in the Drake Hotel someday, but I also think that that kind of attitude, that kind of mindset is something that should be adapted and applied to us as Christians. Because the end is near, we should always be living in light of the return of Christ. We should be always living expectantly as if Christ the King himself were to show up today and we would be found faithful. I think that's what Peter is saying, that we are to live in light of eternity. And in doing that specifically, he says God's people should do three things. And if we as a church body, in living together and serving together, if we want to bring glory to God, then we will do these three things as well. Three very simple, straightforward words. First, we will pray. We will pray. Peter says, because the end is near, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. In every age, it seems there is a temptation to not take life seriously. People don't usually walk around like Stoics, but usually it's quite the opposite. People walk around with no sense of the gravity of life. They simply live for the moment with no sense of where their life is going or the consequences that are going to flow from their actions. And Peter says, never let that be the mindset of Christians. He says, remember the end of all things is at hand, therefore is a calling. It is appropriate for us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. The two words are virtually synonymous. And essentially what he is saying is the Christian life is about clear thinking and watchfulness, being alert and ready for what is to come. You know, a couple of times in my life... Uh, in driving, I have had a couple of near misses. I've come around a curve and there have been deer either around the side of the road or just going away from the road. And uh, sometimes uh, because of the inept driving of other people, uh, that, you know, they could say it was ice, but either way, uh, uh, my safety in my car uh, has been threatened. But there was one time in particular that, that I will never forget, a, a near miss we might say, and that was back in my senior year in college. And uh, I was an RA at college and so I couldn't really uh, sign out for the weekends like I used to do. 
And so Melinda and I uh, were already engaged, and so on, uh, on Friday nights and on Saturday nights, I would drive 45 minutes to see her, and we would go on a date or spend time with her family or, or, or whatever, and then I would make it back by uh, the, the 12 a.m. curfew at the college there. And then a lot of times, I would go around to the guys in my dorms, and I would see what was going on with them. And so sometimes it was 1, 2 o'clock before I went to, to bed, getting up at 6 the next morning to get showered and get dressed and drive another 45 minutes back to Cincinnati to go to church. Uh, with my family and with Melinda. And so you can imagine that over the course of several weeks, this did not lend itself to being very awake, particularly if you were up really late and getting up early the next morning. And, and uh, it was kind of a, a, a cool morning. Uh, I think uh, winter was leaving and spring was upon us, but it was still in the 40s and I'm driving and uh, I'm starting to get kind of drowsy. And you know, it's an odd thing when what feels like a dead sleep, you wake up to find yourself in a car sliding off the road. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's an arresting feeling. And then uh, to know that there's a road sign coming up and everything else and, and trying to jerk the car back onto the road and you wind up going backwards on a major state highway with traffic facing you and you suddenly, you know, you wind up getting the car stalled out and you get it started, you're going the right way again. You don't blink for like an hour after that. I mean, it has a way of, of uh, causing every other thought in your mind to go away. Uh, you know, no, no offense to her, but I wasn't thinking about Melinda at that moment. I was just thinking, stay alive, stay alive, stay alive. And likewise, Peter is saying, you know, understand, the end is coming. It's, it's spiritually speaking, it is just around the corner. Christ has come. He has won the decisive victory. Eternity is on the edge of our lives. Even if chronologically it's not for another 300 years most of us, if we're lucky, are given 75 good years of life. And what Peter is saying is, let that thought sober you up. You are going to stand before your king. Don't, don't fiddle around, don't dilly-dally with the days you've been given. But, but be self-controlled, be alert, be spiritually watchful with your lives. Very specifically, he says, if that is not our attitude, if we don't have this kind of clear-headed watchfulness, then our prayers are going to be worthless. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And the truth is, if there is no urgency to our lives, there will be no urgency to our prayers. We won't take seriously the need to spend time in prayer, nor will we ask for the right things when we do pray. And Peter, more than anyone else, is fit to give us this exhortation because he knows all too well the pain of defeat in this area. You may remember the night before Jesus went to the cross. Peter told it to Mark, who then wrote it in his gospel. In chapter 14, we're told that the disciples and Jesus went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell onto the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? 
Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Now it is enough, for the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The final moments of Jesus' life as a free man before being taken under arrest by the Romans and the Jews and being put on trial and crucified for the sins of his people. And Peter was asked during that most agonizing time when Jesus is contemplating the, the sheer agony of being separated from the Father, being an object of his wrath instead of an eternal object of his love that has gone on from all of eternity past. And he wants with him his three closest friends to, to be with him as an encouragement to pray with him and to pray for him. And they fail. They fail. Instead of being self-controlled and sober-minded as Peter calls us to, he himself was asleep. Peter knew the pain of failure when it came to being watchful unto prayer. And he is encouraging his readers and so us today not to fail in the same way. Not to find ourselves apathetic and lethargic to the spiritual realities around us. To fail to be sober-minded and self-controlled. And so to have our prayers be a waste. Jesus' words could easily serve as a summary for the struggle of the Christian life. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What is the key to spiritual success to having victory over sin? Jesus says at least in part it involves prayerfulness. But how will we take prayer seriously? How will we give it the time we need? How will we be able to remain self-controlled and sober-minded unless we live in light of the cross and the eternity that even now is coming into existence because of it? Remember, Peter here is, is writing not just to individual Christians. He's writing to a church. He's writing to a group of Christians living in community with one another. And though we could certainly apply this passage as individuals, we first have to think about applying this passage as a church. Let me just say that very often in this regard, Wednesday nights can often be a very bittersweet time for me as the pastor. I, I, I come and sometimes there is a, a, an encouraging time of prayer that I am so thankful for. But on the way home, passages like this come to my mind. And not because I just want to see everybody come to everything that we do, but because I know that crucial to our existence as a body of believers is prayerfulness with one another. It, it pains me to know that some who should have been here, some that could have benefited from it, were not. And it makes me think about Peter. And it makes me think about even myself. And apart from the grace of the community of faith gathered together in prayer, what my spiritual life may look like otherwise. Loved ones, we need those times of prayer as an encouragement to godliness with one another. We need those times as a reminder to remain self-controlled and sober-minded so that not just in those times, but also by yourself, our prayers may be effective and God may be glorified in our church. The second instruction that that Peter gives us in verses 8 through 9. Again, just one word. We should love. We should love. 
Peter goes on to say that as God's people living in light of what Christ has done, we are to, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now, Peter has already told these Christians about the importance of love back in chapter 1. There he said in verses 22 through 23, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Peter says, because we have been born again, because we have been given a new spiritual birth by God's Spirit, that we are to imitate the one who has given us this new spiritual life. And we are to love one another just as God himself has loved us. Where did Peter get this? He got it from Jesus himself. Jesus himself, back in John 13, he told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another by this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is an essential virtue of the Christian life. And notice what Peter says here. Keep loving one another earnestly. That word translated earnestly here is actually an anatomical word used to describe muscles being stretched and strained. So you can imagine an athlete and how, when he goes into practice, when he practices, he doesn't just do what he's always done. That's not a good athlete. A good athlete is going to push himself. He's going to take his muscles up to the limits that he has, that he has taken them to before, and he is going to work to push and stretch them just a little farther. So that way, the next time he competes, he's going to be better than he was before. And this is the imagery that, that Peter is invoking here, saying the kind of love that the Christians are supposed to have for one another is a kind of straining, stretching love. It's not a kind of easygoing love. It's a love that requires sacrifice. It's not a lackluster kind of love. It's not the kind of love that is content to see someone on Sunday and flash a smile and say a kind word to them, to shake a hand and then be done. Thinking no more about the person until Sunday. Nor is it a kind of mushy, sentimental love that lacks depth. Now, Peter is saying Christian love is to be so much more than that. It's to be a love that is born out of the divine love the Father has for his own people. It is to be an earnest love displayed by a fervent devotion that causes us to be stretched to our very limits out of concern for one another. Paul described what that love looks like in practical terms in 1 Corinthians 13, a very famous passage. Think about the love you have for the people in this congregation and if this is an accurate description or not. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, for love never ends. That's the kind of love that we are to have as Christians for one another. And Peter explains, giving a, a, a practical example of why that kind of earnest love should be a part of our life. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You see, love does not go around with a haughty spirit condemning everyone all the time for, for all of their foibles, all of their mistakes, all of their sins. Nor does it keep a record of the wrongdoing that was done against them. Very often we will say, yes, I forgive you. 
but I'm not going to forget it. And in the back of our minds, we have this tally record. They did this, and they did that, and they did the other. And so when we, so when we come to, to be with one another, when we come to try and engage in ministry together, we try and, and have genuine fellowship, we only go so far because we remember the pain and the hurt and the sin that was committed against me by that person. And so we kind of, we kind of shake the hands and hope you're doing well, and that's it. And you know, Peter kind of thought this way too, if you remember. And Jesus had just given a, a story about the need to forgive brothers and sisters in the faith. And, and Peter, says, Peter says, well, how often should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? I mean, that seems like a lot, right? Forgive somebody seven times? Perfect number? Jesus says, no. Uh, that's, that's not impressive, Peter. In Matthew 18, he tells him, I say to you, do not forgive the person seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, don't miss the point. Jesus is not saying you pull out a notebook and you start making the hash marks, and when you get to 70 times seven, boop, you're done. You've reached your obligation. No, he is using this enormous number to say, you don't stop. You don't stop forgiving someone. You don't stop forgiving people. You just keep on and on and on. After all, does God stop forgiving you? Do you reach a point in your life where he says, you've reached your sin limit. I'm done. You commit another sin. Sorry, you're off to hell. I can't forgive you anymore. He doesn't do that, does he? In fact, worse than any disobedient child who would slap a parent in the face. Can you imagine the audacity of Christians who claim the blood of Christ for their life and yet continue to sin with impunity, not caring at all about God's love for them? And yet what does God do? If you come to me and confess your sins, I will be faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's the kind of love that God demonstrates to us. And Jesus is saying that kind of love has given birth to you spiritually in your hearts and should be flowing out of you now from your own heart towards one another. So just as God never gives up forgiving you, so you also don't forgive one another. Well, he also gives another practical example of what this looks like, this kind of depth of love. It doesn't just cover a multitude of sins. He also says that this kind of love illustrates itself when, when Christians show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And you have to understand that, that for some of us, this may, not, this may not quite be all that important to us. We say, why showing hospitality? Well, what is he talking about there? But you have to understand what the hotel situation was like in the first century. The hotels that they had back then, number one, weren't cheap. You know, most of us can find a Days Inn or, or Motel 6 or some podunk thing for 30 bucks a night sometimes if we're really desperate. Well, back then, it uh, wasn't like that. I mean, you're talking the equivalence of, of hundreds of dollars to stay at a hotel. And frankly, even those hotels uh, were not without their seedy reputations. Most hotels could have also been labeled brothel. So there's not a place Christians either could usually afford to hang out nor want to be associated with. So what do you do when you travel somewhere? The first thing you do is you go and you find, as a Christian, other Christians. And you say, and you know, however you were, you're going, to, you're going to work it out. I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, and I'm going to be here for a couple of days on business. I need a place to stay. And what became part and parcel of the way of life of other Christians is for them to say, sure, and invite that person into their own home to offer them food and drink and protection and rest to show them hospitality while they were in town. You understand, 
they don't know each other from Adam and or Eve, for that matter. I mean, it's a complete stranger. The only thing that they have possibly in common is the fact that they both claim the name of Christ. You can imagine the mindset back then is probably the same kind of mindset that we have today. It's the kind of mindset that's embodied by a famous Benjamin Franklin quote when he said, remember, fish and visitors smell after three days. I mean, there reaches a point where you're just thinking, how much longer is this person going to be with us? I'm just getting, I'm, I'm getting tired of this. I want them out of here so I can go back to doing the things I want to do the way I want to do it and not having to, to be on my best behavior, as it were, being a gracious host. And Peter says, get rid of that mindset. Blow it up with TNT because that's not what the Christian life is all about. That's not, that's not a, a loving example. That, that's not an example of the kind of love that should flow out of our lives. We show hospitality without grumbling. Peter is saying, look, you can have a person stay in your house two, three, four weeks. If the whole time you're grumbling about it, you're resenting it. He says, that's not love. That's not, what, that's not what the Christian experience is supposed to be about. The whole spirit of giving this kind of loving hospitality is bigger than just cooking a meal or loving someone beyond a normal circle of friendship. It's about sacrificing out of a spirit of love. It's not about doing something someone is telling you to do or doing so that you believe others expect you to do, but grumbling about it the whole time. It's about desiring to imitate the kind of love that you understand has been shown to you. The kind of love that you, you look at another person and you say, you know, maybe on the surface, they're unlovable. It's hard to love that person. But then you remember, God loved them. And God loved them so much that he sent his son to die for them. If God can love the person, what's holding you back from loving them? And quite frankly, friends, if we want to glorify God in this church, then a hallmark of this body must be Christian love. Not sappy, superficial love. Not a love of token gestures, but deep, earnest, sacrificial love that puts the needs of others before our own and causes the world when they look at us to shake their heads in awe. That's the kind of love that will cause people to glorify our Father in heaven. Finally, the last exhortation that Peter gives. If we want to glorify God with our church, then we will serve. We will serve. Peter says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now notice the assumption that Peter makes here. As each has received a gift, he assumes that each Christian has received a gift. It is implicit in his belief that, that as a Christian, that Christ has, through the Spirit, given, assigned a spiritual gift to every believer. And notice what he says. Use that gift. Use it. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. If you're here this morning and you are a believer, then there is a special niche, at least one, of service that God calls you to be a part of among this body of believers. But He doesn't just expect you to do this thing. He has also equipped you very specifically by His Spirit to be involved in that kind of service. And so first of all, as we think about these spiritual gifts, the first thing we have to understand is it's not something that we should boast in, nor is it something that we should squander. 
We don't boast in it because it's come to us as a gift of God's grace. It's something that comes from Him and that He enables us to do. So it's not something we can pat ourselves on the back and say, boy, I did a good job there. No, no. God did a good job through you. You were just the glove with His hand in it, as it were. But furthermore, we've got to... We've got to pull ourselves out of the closet and make ourselves available for God to use as that glove. If I can extend the, that illustration probably far beyond what it should have ever been illustrated as. But you understand my point, you know, when we were in Africa, you know, Warren had all these cool Tomashek sabers and daggers and things. He had one that uh, this king of this city had given him that you strap under your arm so when you're wearing the big boo-boo and the robe and the turban, nobody knows and all of a sudden it's out and you got it. You know, I mean, that, that, you know for a guy that, that's cool stuff, you know. And so, uh, but... You know, Matt, uh, their son had one, and he'd had it for, for several years, and it was a, it was a little dagger. And uh, he had later got a big saber, and he kind of messed around with the saber. He never touched the dagger. And so he said he went to try and pull it out, and basically the whole thing had, had rusted to the point that if he knew if he pulled it out of the, all of the scabbard the whole way, it's just going to break apart. So he just didn't touch the thing. He just left it and, and set it there. And, you know, frankly, um, I fear that for many Christians, uh, much like that Tomashek knife, uh, our giftedness is pretty much about to rust over because we'd never use it. You know, the, the big thing when I was in high school was the spiritual gift assessment tests. And everybody, oh, you got to find what you're supposed to get. Well, that, that's, uh, that could be helpful. And we've even done something like that here and might do it again in the future. But, you know, the thing of it is, did they have spiritual gift assessment tests in the first century? Probably not. Probably not. Uh, so, so how did they know? Well, frankly, this, serving one another was a way of life. And the more you served in various ways, the more it became evident, this is what God has called and equipped me to do. This is what I do well. When I do this, God's people are built up. When I do this, it helps serve God's people so that ministry can go forward and people can accept Christ as Savior and Lord. This is clearly what God has gifted me to do. And so, for, and so let me just say that, you know, maybe as a starting place, it would be sit down and, and do some kind of test, but don't let it end there. In fact, that's just a rough guide. You can be deceiving yourself. The way to know what your gift is is to jump in and actually serve. Do something. Find some areas to say, oh, this is an opening. We need help here. I'm going to do it. And guess what? If you bomb, that's not your gift and calling. Move on to something else. But the problem is, so, so many of us, you know, again, we get caught up in, I, I got to do what's best for me first. But that's not the Christian attitude. That's not the Christian mindset. The Christian mindset says you have been given a gift and you must use it for the glory of God. And Peter here broadly puts every gift into two categories, speaking and serving. Now, that doesn't mean that, that speaking or serving isn't service to God's people. After all, he's just said that all gifts ultimately are to be serving the body of Christ. He's simply speaking functionally here. And so Peter begins by saying, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. And whoever serves as one who serves with the strength that God supplies. So first Peter says, if God has called you to speak to God's people, that is to teach from his words, remember what it is you are to be teaching. You know, it's so easy if you've been teaching for a while to begin to, to be impressed with your own knowledge and to begin to think that you can start just doling out spiritual advice and, and, and things and, and that somehow you're going to be effective. But at the end of the day, Peter says, that's not what it's about. If you are called to teach or to preach... If you are called to speak in the context of spiritual givenness in the body of Christ, then you are to speak as it were the oracles of God. What does he mean? That means you stick to the script. You, you don't ad-lib. You don't deviate. You don't, you don't go off point. You say, look, this is what God's word says, and here's how it applies to our lives. 
You don't get caught up in pride thinking somehow that what God has gifted us in has become something, again, to boast in. But in humility, you say, I am simply here as the mouthpiece for God and His Word. Likewise, Peter says, whoever serves, they should serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, surely those who would preach need God's strength as well. However, there can be a mindset that says, of course, the preaching and the teaching ministries, they need a special measure of God's grace because they're handling God's word. But me, I'm just setting up tables for the church lunch. I'm just going over to clean somebody's house. I'm just hosting a small group. I can do this on my own. I don't need grace for this. Well, there's two problems with that. First of all, you can't do it on your own. I mean, maybe physically, maybe physically you're able to perform the task on your own. But over the long haul, spiritually and emotionally, you will get tired. You will get worn down and the temptation will be to, to begin to grumble and complain about the service that you feel locked into. Or you're going to look with resentment and bitterness at those that you think should be serving and aren't. And so God says, Peter says rather, as God's mouthpiece, you need to serve in the strength that God supplies. So that when you serve, it's not going to be with, with grumbling, but with joy and humility. Second, if you're trying to serve in your own strength, ultimately, who's getting the glory? If you're serving in your own strength, if you're depending on yourself, who is getting the glory? Notice the motivation Peter gives in verse 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves with the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. God can only be glorified if in our service to one another we make it clear that our gifting comes from Him and our service is strengthened by Him. Peter is clear that to God belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Therefore, as God's people, it should be our desire to display that reality. We serve in the strength that God supplies so it is clear that God is at work in our lives ministering to His people simply through us. And in that way, God gets the glory He deserves. So this morning, how, let me ask the question very specifically, how are you serving God's people? It's easy to be served. It's easy to show up to different things and be, the, and be the beneficiary of the service of others. But what are you doing as God's people? What are you doing as God's servant to serve one another? Sometimes we make excuses. We invoke things that are important like time and family. Sometimes those can be legitimate reasons for not being able to serve more, but very often they're not. Very often they're just excuses that we use to not only convince others, but convince ourselves that we don't need to serve as much as God would call us to do. And frankly, if we find ourselves too busy to serve God's people, then maybe we need to, to get rid of some things in our life that's causing that amount of busyness. There's lots of things that are in our lives that aren't sinful, but they're also not necessary and can be removed so that we can serve one another better. It's part, ultimately, is our calling as believers, as Christians, those redeemed out of sin by the blood of Christ to love and serve one another. And if we fail to serve, then God will not be glorified in this church. Once a person asked Martin Luther what he would do if he knew the Lord was coming back that day, Luther said this, I would plant a tree and pay taxes. Now what does he mean by that? You're thinking, Luther, come on, Marty baby, what are you, what are you talking about here? But 
the point he was trying to make is he lives every day in light of what God calls him to do. He lives every day as if Christ is coming back that day and he is going to be found faithful. And so if today is the day that he is to plant his tree and pay taxes, this is what he's going to do to the glory of God. And you know, as we, as we end with Peter hearing these words, the end of all things is at hand. We might expect him to call us to some kind of extraordinary feat as Christians in light of this impending reality. But what does he do? It calls just everyday normal Christian living. These things... These things that he calls us to, to pray, to love, and to serve, they're not, they're not above and beyond the call of duty. They're not extra special for the really spiritual people. It's just the normal Christian life. And so when we talk about being resolved to live to God's glory, we're not talking about taking some massive step of faith off into the wilderness somewhere. We're simply talking about every day rising our heads from the pillow and determining that this day, I will live in light of the cross. I will live with the understanding I am not my own. I am bought with a price. And that all that I am called to do, from how I eat breakfast and give thanks for it, to how I do my job, to how I worship with God's people, all those things should be done in a way that brings glory to my God and my Savior. We are to live a life that is lived before our King in light of what He has done for us and in light of the reality that He is coming again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that this morning that we would have heard your message to us again, not as some, something for the super spiritual, not something that we would think we would attain after years and years of living the Christian life. Father, help us understand this should be normative for our lives as Christians. And again, Father, help us to, to in the midst of our conviction, to feel encouragement and comfort knowing that when you call us to a task, you give us the grace we need to succeed in that task. And so, Father, this morning, if we find ourselves deficient in some area of living for your glory, Father, we know that we can both come and with confidence ask forgiveness for that. But, Father, we also know we can come and beg for wisdom and grace that we need to be strengthened to live according to your will for our lives. And so, Father, as we sing this song of response for the last time in this series, Father, we pray more than empty words, this would truly be the prayer of our heart. That above all else, you would be the great guiding, empowering vision of our lives. A vision that is so glorious that sin loses its appeal. And you are made much of in our lives. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, Be Thou My Vision. <laughs>